You're listening to the Outcast Podcast with Mike Redding and Blake Seifert, exploring excellence in teaching, tech, and leadership. Excellent. So welcome back to the Outclass Podcast. It's great to be with you again. Uh, as usual, I've got Blake with me. How are you going, Blake? I'm doing well, Mike. I'm very excited about today's uh, today's guest here. We've got Mike uh, from Monash University, Mike, Mike Phillips. He goes by Mike. There's too many Mikes in the room, I think. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to be unpacking TPAC today. So, Mike, uh, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, awesome. So I thought it would be just good to get a little bit about your background. I know just before we hit record, you mentioned that you'd been a high school teacher for a while. So always interested to hear about uh, a little bit about our guests and their background. So maybe if you want to just start there and uh, we'll work out. So what subjects were you teaching in in high school? So I originally uh, qualified as a, as a phys ed and geography teacher. And wow. so I taught both of those to year 12. But then I also, like most teachers in schools, I, I ended up teaching a whole range of other things. So I also taught maths and outdoor ed to year 12 and then a bunch of other things um, below that, all of those, plus, you know, obviously IT, um, some science, some history, some a whole range of different things. Yeah, wow. Very similar to me. I started off in science and then ended up teaching history and geography for a number of years. So Yeah, it's funny how that happens, isn't it? Yeah, taught a bit of PE for a couple of semesters as well. So yeah, just end up putting your hand up. I got bored pretty easily and uh, pretty quickly. So I was the guy who was always like, yep, give me something else in my load to, to keep me interested. Absolutely. And yeah. and it was actually at that time that I, I started to get really interested in, in education technology, not because I was particularly good with it. In fact, you know, if I need something recorded on the telly, I'll still get the kids to do it. So I'll, I'll stuff it up somewhere along the way. But I became really fascinated with what happens when when technology gets placed into a classroom with kids and teachers and the different reactions that different teachers had in the school that I was working in. You know, I had some colleagues who were saying, just just give me more of this. I love it. Just I can't get enough. I'll I'll take on whatever comes next. And other teachers were, were, you know, trying to hold back the digital tide and and saying, don't bring any of that stuff anywhere near me or my kids. Mm -hmm. And so I became really fascinated in these polarized kind of um, reactions to the increasing numbers of, of technologies that were appearing in classrooms at that time. Yeah, wow. And so how far ago, like how long ago are we going back here? That was, uh, I finished teaching in schools in 2009, so just over a decade ago. So it was when all those sort of mobile devices were sort of starting to come on onto the market and we were starting to see a lot more um, laptops and things in classrooms um, a lot more data projectors, those kinds of things, yeah. and starting to see the way that teachers were making decisions about how and, and what to use and when to use it. That was what really got me fascinated in, in education technologies and, and kind of paved the path to where I am now. Yeah, it sounds very similar. I can remember that transition from the overhead projector to PowerPoint and thinking, why am I spending so much time redoing these? Because, uh, you know, I had all your slides already done and put into a folder and you just whip them out. Yeah. Yep. It sounds like we're in about the same era. Absolutely. And then, and then you've realized, you know, as, as technology has evolved, we've had to redo our learning materials, you know, five times into each digital platform and LMS that has come and gone in the last 10 years. And it's, it's kind of funny to think about education being, you know, all these handouts and overhead projection things that were kind of for there for 50 years plus, and then they got sort of transformed five times within 10 years um, when the, you know, the, so-called digital education revolution came around. So um, super fascinating. I'm, I'm interested, Mike, about how you made that jump from 
classroom teacher, you know, you're fascinated with, with technologies and for people who are listening, what does that look like to go from a teacher into academia and into research and those kind of things? How, how, how does that even work? It's, it, was a, it was a pretty different and, and scary kind of time, I guess. I, was, I guess I was looking for a bit of a change. Um, I'd been, been teaching, as I said, for 15 years and, and had taken on some leadership positions in schools. You know, after a while, you sort of tend to gravitate towards, or a lot of people tend to gravitate towards those. And, and all of a sudden, I realised that I was spending a lot more time with other people's kids rather than my own. And I thought that, that balance doesn't quite seem right. So I was looking for, for something a little bit different. And I'd actually just completed a master's in, in education technology because, as I said, I was just, I was just interested in, in the idea. And, um, and so I was really lucky in, in that uh, a good now friend and colleague um, who's a now professor in the faculty, Michael Henderson, um, said, well, if you're looking for a bit of a change, why don't you come and, and work as a research assistant for a little while and see what you think? And so I thought, oh, well, I, can, I know I can probably always pick up a job in, in teaching if I want to. So I thought I'll give something... Uh, a bit different ago and I just fell in love with research and and being able to spend time exploring questions that aren't simple to answer but take some time and some energy and some effort um, to to think about and to explore and and ultimately what I really wanted to be able to do was to be able to help teachers answer questions that I wasn't able to answer as a teacher so you know looking at these teachers that as I said in schools who make um, take on board all these different kinds of technologies my work really over the last 10 years has been trying to figure out, well, how is it that teachers make really good decisions about what technologies to use when and for what kind of purpose? So really what I'm interested in is teacher decision-making, particularly around education technologies. How do, how do teachers make these fantastic decisions day in, day out without being able to really bounce ideas off other adults in the room and doing it for hours and hours at a time? Mm. It's, a, it's an incredible thing that, that teachers do. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so that's been the main focus of your study for the last 10 years has been all around that, the edtech. Yeah, yeah around ed- education technologies and teachers' decision-making in, in technology-rich contexts, yeah. So did you go in with a teaching background having a little bit of an assumption? Like, did you think you knew what you were going to find or...? Uh, no, and, and every day I still keep finding new things. I still don't know that I necessarily have the complete answer. You know, <laughs> I think that there's, it's such a complex... Uh, complex space and there are so many factors at play you know as we all know as teachers one thing that you might do with a year nine class in period one do exactly the same thing in period two with another year nine class and it's a completely different outcome Um, so there there are so many things that go on Um, it's uh, yeah it's it's a never-ending investigation I think Mm. so how does TPAC marry into that so you're talking about decision making you know, we, we, a lot of people have heard of TPAC. Maybe if you want to just unpack what that is and then we can talk about it in the context of, of decision-making. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not the first person clearly in the world to start thinking about how teachers make choices or, or decisions. And so people have been researching and looking into that for a really long period of time. And in the, in the US, that the idea around teacher professionalism and about what it is that teachers know um, that separates them from other kinds of professions probably reached a crescendo in the in the mid 80s where there was uh, at that time Ronald Reagan um, formed a, a task force that was really damning and critical of, of teachers and teaching and so there was a guy who was the president of the American Education Research Association probably the biggest research association in the world 
Uh, The president in 1986 was a guy called Lee Shulman, who some people may or may not have heard of. But what Lee was trying to figure out was um, he was trying to support and and, um, not justify the the professionalism of teachers, but but trying to really um, get out into the public that teachers were professionals and they should be treated that way and probably paid that way. And so what he was trying to do was to work out what's the difference between a content expert and a teacher? So what's the difference, say, between a physicist and a physics teacher? And he said, well, both the physicist and the physics teacher probably need to have really great content knowledge. If you don't know anything about physics, you probably shouldn't walk into a physics classroom. So that's one of the things that I haven't taught and I don't walk into a physics classroom. Mm -hmm. But he said the, the physics teacher, on top of this great content knowledge, also has to have a thing that he called pedagogical knowledge. So knowledge about the people that you're going to be trying to teach this content to and about how you might, how there there might be an interplay between that content knowledge and that pedagogical knowledge. How might you shape this particular content for this particular group of students or this individual student at this particular point in time for a particular purpose? And so what he was saying was that the great teachers, when they bring this pedagogical knowledge and this content knowledge together, what we get is a sum that is greater than the individual parts, that we actually have a fundamentally different form of knowledge that he called pedagogical content knowledge or PCK for short. Mm. So that was in the mid 80s. And a lot of work's been done, particularly in in science, with a lot of science educators around um, this way that teachers transform content for particular students for a particular purpose at a particular point in time. Well, about 20 years after that happened, um, there were two guys who were at that point both at Michigan State University in the US, one uh, guy by the name of Punya Mishra and another by the name of Matt Kaler. And Punya and Matt, like many of us, started noticing the increasing number of, of digital devices that were appearing in classrooms. And so they said, well, Perhaps on top of Shulman's idea of PCK, maybe teachers also need to have some kind of technological knowledge. And they're talking more than like, what button do you press to turn this device on? Uh, They were talking about a deeper understanding about the the affordances or opportunities and the constraints or limitations that different forms of technology bring with their design. And how might those um, opportunities or limitations change the way that we represent content how might those technologies or our understanding of those technologies change the way in in which we approach um, having students work with students or having students work with teachers changing that pedagogical kind of notion and so what they said was that they're in their opinion really great teachers when integrating technologies drew upon this idea of technological pedagogical and content knowledge or tpac So in 2006, they published an article. I'd actually published a couple of articles before that, as had a couple of other people who who talked about this term. And in Matt and Punya's own words, nobody, and I mean nobody, paid any attention to any of those earlier articles. But in 2006, they published an article in a journal called Teacher College Record. Um, And in that, Punya, who's a, a great designer as well, just represented these three forms of knowledge as three overlapping circles, like a a Venn diagram kind of an idea. And I think, and a lot of people think that it was that representation that allowed people to kind of understand what it was that they were talking about, that as soon as you change the technology, it's going to change 
the content representation and it's going to change your pedagogical approach. Or if you change the content, well, maybe that technology all of a sudden isn't fit for purpose. And so there's this ongoing um, reconsideration of things um, when one thing changes, so does everything else. Mm. How true do you think how true do you think that is, Mike? Do you think that if if we add technology in the classroom, it does change the way we, you know, do the pedagogy or or the way we deliver the content? I think I think it certainly has the potential to, and I think that it that it does. And, and I think that one of the problems though with the with the TPAC framework, and, and there are a number of limitations with it, but I think one of the big problems is that probably just because of for ease of pronunciation, the T comes first. When actually I don't know that the, that teachers should necessarily be thinking about technologies first and then trying to fit everything in, else in around it. It's like, oh, I've got this new shiny toy. I want to use it in my classroom. How do I make it work? Well, it's probably going to fall flat because it's just not necessarily, you're not necessarily thinking about that integrated approach. So I would either be thinking about what's the content that I'm trying to teach and then maybe think about, well, who are the kids now that I'm trying to teach it to? What's the best way to be able to, to represent that content to this group of kids? And, and then the choice of technologies becomes relatively easy. Mm. And sometimes the choice of technology for that particular group of kids at that point in time for that particular content might actually be a pen and paper. It might be last period on a Friday and you might be thinking, actually, I don't need any more distractions in my lesson. I, I might actually just go back to something that, you know, has a, has a different kind of focus to it. Yeah, so if you look at content first, and I'm just starting to think down the lines of, uh, you know, one of the trends that's happening at the moment is like student-centred learning where the students almost design their own learning pathway in a sense. Yeah. You're not necessarily starting with content in terms of forward-loading that. Quite often what happens is you start with what technology is around me and then try and build some content around that in a sense. So, uh, and I can definitely see what you're saying. Like when we were told to go to interactive whiteboards, we were forced down a pathway of changing the way you interacted with students, right? Because now you had content in a certain way, but now you couldn't deliver it in that way. So now that everything and technology shoehorned you into a way of teaching that teachers didn't particularly like. So, yeah. Um, yeah. How do, how do you balance between that student-centered pedagogy versus uh, the content? And I mean, do you favor one side over another? Or I'm just interested in what your thoughts are. No, look, I mean, I think I think that a student-centred approach is fantastic and works absolutely brilliantly with with some kids and some some groups of kids. Um, and like everything, um, it doesn't work with other groups as well. So I think um, it, it is a is a really great approach. But the, if you use it all the time, and that's the only um, tool in your toolbox. Then it's probably going to become blunt relatively quickly. So I think um, in the same way that if we're offering opportunities for kids to be making decisions about content, for example, or maybe we should also be teaching them some of the ways in which as educators, we're thinking about the technologies and their relationship to content so that they can start to make really effective choices about what technologies they use as well. It's not just because I've used it before or it's simple or, you know, something like that. It's actually fit for purpose. So I think that the TPAC framework, while it talks about teacher knowledge, has the potential to to do some some of that work for students as well. Um, and so one of the things that, that came out uh, probably four or five years ago now was the notion of distributed TPAC. So up until then, everyone had been kind of thinking about teacher knowledge as this individual attribute, this thing that's in a single person's head or body or whatever it happens to be. But 
really in schools, as we know, a lot of the time, teachers talk with other teachers. You know, they'll sit around in the staff room and have a chat about what's going on. And, and so all of a sudden, people started to think, well, maybe this knowledge is actually distributed amongst groups of people. Maybe you don't have to be a, a technology expert on every single form of technology. But if I know that Blake's really cool with, with video production or something like that, and I'm wanting to do something like that, I can go and pick his brains and draw upon his knowledge. Um, and I don't have to be the, the keeper of every single part of that. And so kids could be involved in that as well. So, so how does, how does TPAC kind of account for um, the discovery of the technology? Because I know that, that like that can often be an issue where if we're not aware that there is such a thing as doing green screen in a video, for instance, or, you know, something like that, the, the sort of the features of, of the technology aren't apparent to us or we're not familiar with them. Um, how, does, how, does, how does that kind of marry into TPAC? Because TPAC is kind of assuming like technology is this thing that we all kind of get and we can just pick and choose, oh, we want some video editing today. Um, if we don't know that that, that exists um, to begin with, uh, you know, especially with emerging technology, that's one of the things I find difficult is that, you know, innovation happens rapidly in, in clusters, but often it doesn't get out to the, to the whole school, um, you know, in terms of understanding. So how do you sort of marry that with TPAC and, and what are some strategies you'd also advice you would give to schools around that? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is probably almost impossible to keep up with all, all different innovations that are coming out. There are just so many that come out so quickly. And even then when you, when you think you know a piece of software or, or how to use a piece of hardware, somebody will do something with it and it was like, well, I never knew it could do that. Mm. You know, it's like all of a sudden there's this, this feature that you never knew existed. And so there was a, a late, by the name of Susie Cox, who in 2008 did a PhD in, in the US. And she talked about this idea of, of emerging and transparent technologies. So she talked about a transparent technology being something for most teachers, probably like a data projector or a, or a smart board or something like that, or PowerPoint. We don't even think about PowerPoint necessarily being a technology, but it's just something that it's a tool that we use in a classroom. So she talked about that as being a transparent technology, a bit like a whiteboard marker is a form of technology. It's made by people. But we don't think about, well, how am I going to use this whiteboard marker in the same way that most teachers don't think about how am I going to use PowerPoint? They just do it. And so she talked about those as being transparent technologies. And I would argue that if teachers are, are using transparent technologies and what might be transparent for me might be something completely new for another teacher. So it's a very individual thing. But if a teacher is using a transparent technology, then probably it's not related to TPAC because the technological considerations in the teacher's thinking and decision-making are not writ large. They're in the background. So I would argue that's probably just Schulman's PCK. It's not really a technological pedagogical content decision that's being made. If it's an emerging technology, something that's relatively new to somebody, then they have to think about how am I, what, what does this VR headset mean in terms of the way that I'm going to have to change the, the way that I, I organise my class with the kids? How am I going to actually get content into there or get kids to design content using this, this kind of technology? In those situations, all the decision-making has a technological component to it. It's, it's bouncing around all the time in, in teachers' decision-making. So... Um, in that case, I'd suggest that it's, it's TPAC. So I think that one of the things that um, I'd suggest for schools is 
don't assume that all teachers are coming at things at the same level. That that you've got some teachers who for whom VR or AR is going to be, oh yeah, I've been using it for a couple of years now. I know all about it. Um, so for them, you might actually be able to use those people and their technological knowledge to be able to help support people for whom that's an emerging kind of a technology. Mm. So it, it's a way for us to be able to not classify teachers, but to support teachers if they're feeling like this is something that they might want to try. And that's deceptively profound, Mike, because because one of the things I've I've noticed is is our digital literacy varies more in staff body typically than it does in the student body, um, yeah. and and there is such a variance. There are people who you know certainly five ten years ago who could barely turn the computer on, and then you've got people who you know could not only turn the computer on, they're collaborating on docs, they're doing video editing, they're doing a whole bunch of rich media. Um, without thinking twice. And if you're going to go in and deliver PD, and this ties into sort of what Mike does on a day-to-day basis, it, you know, you talk to 60 people at once and you say, okay, here's how to use Google Docs. You've got 20 people disengaged, 20 people completely unaware of what's going on. Like this is way too difficult. And then you might reach like five people right in the middle, uh, which isn't necessarily a good use of your time. But I, I just want to backpedal a little bit and just get clear what, what you're saying. So, um, so basically, if a, if a technology is being used as a, a transparent technology, something that is, um, I guess, conventionally accepted as, you know, everyone's aware of it, like PowerPoint or something like that, um, that that wouldn't fit into this model and it would be used much like a whiteboard marker or an overhead projector or anything that was kind of used en masse, I guess, if you like. Is there any sort of way to think about qualifying those technologies? Because... What, what I'm interested in is using that as a way to deliver PD in the school. So to say, uh, you know, what are the things that are transparent to you? We can tick all those. And for anyone who's, you know, the outlier, we can go give them directed PD. And for anyone who's saying, or, you know, for the, for the areas that are clearly emerging where people don't know much about it at all, we could set up, you know, uh, strategic PD there as well. Is that a good way to think about it or, or you know, where am I going wrong there? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, could, be, it could be used. One of, the, one of the challenges, though, that we have, and we find this often with our pre-service teachers. So if you look at a lot of studies that, that use TPAC, um, because it's easy to kind of get data from students that you're teaching, a lot of it's around pre-service teachers. And if you, if you go to a pre-service teacher in the, the first year of their four-year undergraduate degree and basically ask them to do a self-report TPAC kind of measurement thing, they'll typically rate themselves really high. By the end of their four-year degree, they typically rate themselves much lower than they did in first year. Arguably, it's not because they've got worse or have they've forgotten things over that period of time. It's just that they realise that they know a lot less than they thought they did when they first started. So it's, an understand, it's a recognition of where they're placed. So it's a really hard thing to do to get teachers to do TPAC kind of self-report stuff because if you don't know about this thing or don't know that it exists or how it works or anything, you, you're probably not even going to sort of start to consider that. Or if you if you only use PowerPoint and, and Excel in your classrooms, then you're going to rate yourself really highly because you, you think you're using them really well, which you probably are, but it doesn't necessarily give you the answers for all of those other kinds of, of technologies. So it might be... Um, a thing where you could you could start to get people to rate themselves on a scale of one to five or whatever you wanted to over a range of different technologies. Or you could be saying, um, 
over the last six months, how often have you used these kinds of things? So you could go about it in a, in a different kind of a way and then start from um, a school leader or, or like yourself, like somebody in that, that kind of position in a school to start to think about it through a TPAC lens. But you're not necessarily asking TPAC kinds of mm. questions necessarily. It's about what a teacher is actually doing with technologies. Yeah, and then and you've got to take into account the relevance. You might ask them, are they using VR? But they're like, well, I don't see VR as relevant in terms of in terms of the the content, you know, delivery. Yeah. So there's a whole whole myriad of uh, of uh, complexity gets unpacked in there, doesn't it? <laughs> which is which is I guess indicative of, of of your role doing research is that the more doors you open, the more doors there are to open. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that's that's exactly right, and and then. You know, we can we can continue to talk about TPAC, but one of the realities is that in addition to teachers' knowledge, they make decisions based on a whole range of other things as well. So one of the things that we were talking about there, for example, was skill. So if you're particularly skilled using a particular application or a particular type of hardware or whatever it happens to be, you're probably more likely to use it than if you find it really difficult to do it or, or you don't think that you're particularly skilled in it. Similarly, if you're seen, um, if you know, if Blake or, or Mike, you were working in a school um, as a teacher, then probably you'd be seen as one of the, the ed tech kind of folks in the school. And so your identity within that school community would be of a technology using teacher. So if your identity is wrapped up with the technologies, you're probably more likely to use it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, if you, if you, if you have beliefs and there's been a whole lot of work done around teachers' beliefs and and technology integration, if you believe technologies are beneficial for student learning or to help you with your teaching or whatever it happens to be, if you value that, then again, you're much more likely to to try to integrate technologies or persist when things get a little bit trickier. So there's actually this whole range of different things in addition to teachers' knowledge that they use to to make decisions about what to or not to do in, in classrooms. And so the last two or three years, three or four years, um, I've been trying to move beyond TPAC, still include it, but start to try to work out a way where we can look at the types of decisions that teachers make and start to say, well, what other kinds of things, in addition to knowledge, come into the the decision-making that these teachers are are, are going through? So I call that collection of, of five things. So I talk about skills, knowledge, identity, um, values, which is kind of like beliefs, and epistemology, which is a fancy word for talking about the way different subject areas think about knowledge. So, for example, the way um, chemistry thinks, you know, chemists think, they want to kind of like atomize things down to its smallest kind of molecule, whereas a biologist wants to think in broad kind of systems as a general broad general kind of an idea. So different subject areas have these different ways of of constructing and thinking about knowledge. So with those five elements, skills, knowledge, identity, values, and epistemology, or SCIVE, um, I talk about those in terms of what I call an EPWIDE, amongst others, call an epistemic frame. So there's this broader frame of things that teachers use to make decisions. And so... That idea came from a guy called David Schaefer from the University of Wisconsin in, in Madison in the US. And he's got a, a really cool tool called epistemic network analysis, which allows us to actually measure and quantify the strength of connections between those types of elements 
and the um, types of decisions that teachers make. Okay, so wow. when you're talking about these decisions, obviously you're trying to make you're trying to make improvements, right? So we're trying to make things better. So yep. to what end? Like just making decisions on what technology to use, or make decisions on how to teach, or like what's the end game? Well, uh, for and that varies from teacher to teacher, but but for me, it's looking at uh, long term about improving student learning outcomes. So, and that might not just be content learning outcomes, but that might be um, social learning outcomes. That might be um, a whole range of different things, but it's about um, helping people to become better versions of themselves, I guess, which is, which is really a big part of what education is about. So, yeah, all of those kinds of decisions. And, and we've, so we've got a decision-making framework um, called Pedagogical Reasoning and Action, which has six kind of stages that most teachers go through in sometimes in different orders and they spend different amounts of time on things, but it's a generally pretty well accepted kind of framework about how most teachers make a lot of decisions. So would you roll that out um, like a principal or middle leaders would pick that framework up and use it to group and move, help move teachers towards an outcome? Or is that something that is more individualistic in terms of a teacher wants to improve so they'd use this framework? Um, both, both can do that. Um, so one of the things that um, I'm in the process of doing at the moment is gathering a whole lot of data uh, from pre-service teachers as well as experienced in-service teachers. Because what I want to find out is what are the differences in their decision-making? If we can quantify, and we can now map these kinds of connections, are there significant differences between the way experienced teachers do this and the way that more novice teachers do this? And are we then able to get a more predictable and robust pathway to be able to get the novice to start thinking more like the, the, the expert or the more experienced teacher? Um, and, and I'm also doing that across different subject areas. So we ran a, ran a pilot study um, two years ago um, where we looked at uh, science, technology and maths teachers and the way that they plan for lessons with the idea that a lot of countries around the world, a lot of governments around the world are wanting to try to start to come up with this idea of integrated STEM. So having science, technology and maths teachers working with the same group of kids at the same time around these kind of integrated challenging problem areas well what we found was that it's almost like these teachers are, are speaking in different languages in the way that they plan they they just plan in fundamentally different ways which is problematic if we just say well we've timetabled these teachers to teach together um off you go and, and make it work well it's i think it's probably a little bit more complicated than that and so um we actually need to either do one of, of two things, I think, if we're wanting that integrated STEM idea. One is to have the teachers understand these differences and try to teach them to speak one another's language a little bit more so that they can actually truly integrate what it is that they're trying to do. Or point out these differences and point these differences out to the kids in the classrooms and say, well, if you're thinking about this problem like a mathematician and you're going about it this way and you're not having much success, well, a scientist might think about it this way. So perhaps you might want to change the way that you, you're considering the problem and you might have some more success. So not necessarily trying to get everybody to think in exactly the same way, but starting to understand and unpack um, these, these different subject-based differences. 
Is that primarily in the, you know, what, what you would call the, the pedagogical knowledge, the PK part of TPAC? Is that, is that sort of where that, that operates or does that cross into content knowledge and into technical knowledge as well? Yeah, absolutely. And to make things even more complicated, Lee Shulman, who came up with that idea of PCK mm. back in the 80s, he talked about PCK being just one form of, I think it was seven different forms of knowledge that teachers need. So PCK doesn't actually really have uh, something like knowledge of curriculum in it or knowledge of, of educational contexts, which were two of the other ones that, that he talked about. He also talked about this notion of general, general pedagogical knowledge, which is uh, whether you're teaching science or whether you're teaching history or whether you're teaching PE, there are just some things that all those teachers will do. So, um, you know, we, we all probably recognise that it's a bad idea to hit kids. Um, doesn't matter what subject you're teaching, there's a general kind of pedagogical principle. Um, so there are all of these different forms of, of knowledge as well as technological knowledge. And, it, and for those, those STEM teachers that we were working with, it changes for all of them. All of those different things interact in different ways. So true. I found that when I went from science to the history and geography department, I just couldn't believe the way they thought and the way they planned. And I was just like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. um, it took me a while to come around to their way of thinking, but I can definitely see the reasons behind it. So you're 100% right. Yeah. But it's, it's about what, what different groups of people find, think are important, what they value. Um, and, and, you know, that's one of the, the fantastic things, I think, about a lot of the education systems that I've been fortunate enough to look at, that they start off with a really broad base. They get kids to start thinking in a whole range of very different and divergent sorts of ways. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and so that, that's a pretty cool thing. It's, it's just difficult when we have teachers who are often teaching that in that one subject area um, and they're starting to think about things in, in sort of more finite, siloed ways. This is that power of diversity, isn't it? Where diverse thinking, you know, diversity of perspective, all of those things add up to a better end result. Um, but one thing I'm interested to just come back to for a moment is something that just sparked my interest when you were talking about ways of kind of using it to assess things. I wonder, can we use TPAC to actually assess the technology itself? Because one idea that I was just thinking of, like an overhead projector, if I was a, a graduate teacher now, I would probably treat an overhead projector as an emerging technology in that I didn't have much knowledge of it. And it's certainly not something that I could do, you know, without thinking, um, you know, I'd have to figure out how it all sort of works and how I would teach with it. Um, can the, the model actually be used for assessing? I, I think of the example of like Google Docs is highly embedded in our school now. And this idea that you would email a Word doc around to everyone and then collate it all later, like that just seems... Is, is laughable. In fact, teachers often joke about it now if someone emails a document because it's so, you know, well, last century in a way. So, uh, so I wonder, can it be used in a way to actually assess the technology? Like, is there a way that we could look at the technologies we're using in the school, like whether it's the interactive whiteboard and see, is this something that actually matters in the, in the formation of good teaching, you know, through the lens of TPAC? Can it be used in that way? Or is there any, any thoughts on that? Um, I, my initial reaction would be I, I probably wouldn't do that. This is this is a, a framework that's been designed specifically to to look at teachers' knowledge. Mm. So it's not designed to to assess technologies, and it's not really even designed to um, 
assess teachers to rate them as as good or bad. It's just a way for us to start to think about the interactions between technologies and, and pedagogical approaches and, and content. Um, so that there are plenty of other kinds of um, tools or, or frameworks that you could use to, to look at rating or assessing or evaluating different forms of technologies. Um, I don't think TPAC would necessarily get you the kinds of answers that you, you might be looking for there. So it's really a, a, a tool for, for, like you were saying, almost the individuals to, uh, to use in their, their kind of professional development, if you like. Well, yeah, and it's also a really good way sometimes to step back and think, well, if something didn't work quite so well there, why might that be the case? Where, where did things sort of fall apart? Which part of this, these overlapping circles didn't overlap in this particular case? Um, and so it can be a, a good way for when things aren't going the way that you might have hoped to actually step back and, and take a look at what's going on. Mm. That's so fascinating. when you're doing that, like you talked about the the um, trainee teachers that are coming through and they rate themselves pretty high initially and the more you know, the more you realise you don't know in a sense. So is it better when you're coming up with that scale to, to be almost like a black or white, I can do this skill, yes or no? rather than, like, I like the way you said in the last six months, how often have you used? I think that's a good indication. But in one sense, you could be using it, but using it wrong or poorly as well. So yeah, um, the skills play a piece in that. I'm just wondering, like, if yeah. I'm a school leader and I'm looking at this and going, okay, I'd love to be able to progress my staff towards better teaching and learning. I guess it's not like the summer model in a sense where you can go substitution and, and lay across. Yeah. But is there some way that you can, can think about that? Yeah, so that, that's a, a question that actually one of my PhD students is, is looking at. So what does it actually mean? What does it look like to get better when you're teaching with technologies? So what's a better way of, of you know, what's a higher level of TPAC? What does that look like in the classroom? And so I think that um, what, w there are some inherent problems in, in self-report measures, as I've said, but they can be great to start a conversation. And then if you actually follow those up with, with other ways of exploring what teachers are doing. So, for example, observing what they're doing or having, um, and that doesn't mean that the principal has to walk into the classroom. It might be that you're working in a school where um, people are team teaching together. And so what you're doing is you're actually empowering other teachers to work with with their colleagues. Um, and again, it's not saying better or worse, good or bad. It's just about saying, well, it seemed like you wanted to do this, but you got to this level and, and then there was a problem or something changed or something went wrong. Let's unpack that and, and try to figure out what we might do next time around. Um, so I've got another PhD student who's doing a really interesting study where he in his school in South Australia has um, introduced a program that he calls a digital leader program and the digital leaders are students and they're the ones who are doing a lot of the uh, upskilling of the teachers when it comes to their technological knowledge the kids for the technologies uh, for the kids the technologies are transparent for the teachers not so much <laughs> they're more emerging and so he's actually got a program there where you've got kids working with teachers and the kids are actually in classes doing a lot of the tech problem solving stuff. So that frees the teachers then to, to actually focus on the content and the pedagogical approach. But at the same time, they're still learning about the technologies um, in, in real time in class. So that's, a, that's a, another totally different way to think about it. 
That's really interesting. So you really need to define better for a start. And that would be at an individual level, I guess. Like I, to give you some context, I was talking to a teacher yesterday who just went through an appraisal uh, with a principal and the principal didn't like what he saw in the class because it was noisy, but she saw it as very creative and collaborative. And so there was two different worldviews looking at the same problem. And the problem was that she was being appraised on the principal's notion of what better is rather than what she, so you've got to find that, that element where you allow for that teacher identified definition, right? Uh, absolutely. I, I think you're totally right, Mike. I think it's a very individual kind of a thing as to, to what getting better looks like. And the other thing that I think is also really important for teachers and school leaders to keep in mind is that TPAC is not this kind of aspirational endpoint where once you've got it, you've got it for life. Because, you know, the, the second you turn around, something's going to change in your class and the moment that you had it has just slipped away and all of a sudden you're then struggling to, to bring everything back into, into that nice harmonious balance. Um, and, and so it's, it's this thing that's a constant uh, effort to, to try to get to, to that, that beautiful sweet spot in the middle of that Venn diagram. That's our law of entropy, right? <laughs> we have to keep working at things. Um, yeah. And, and so, like, if you are um, a school leader listening or, you know, your e-learning coordinator type or even in my position, you know, that being the IT director, um, what are the best ways to kind of use this? Like, if, you, if you're right at the start and you're thinking, okay, well, you know, my staff may not even know what TPAC is. I need to explain it, first of all, and, and uh, what it is and how it works. Um, is it best to start, you know, should, should I be running a staff meeting? Should I be working in teams, take it to curriculum um, teams or like how, how should a school go about sort of implementing a model like this? Yeah, it's a really good question, Blake. And, and one of the things that if people look at that TPAC diagram, one of the things that I think is often forgotten is a dotted blue line around the outside of it that says context. And context is absolutely the most important part, I think, of, of this framework. That what, what appears to be somebody who has or a group of people maybe who might have technological pedagogical and content knowledge in one context it's not it's going to be totally different in another so i think to some extent it depends on the organizational structure of, of your school um, and how many people for example you've got working in your school i mean ideally you might be wanting to do this with individuals but if you work in a large school like you do blake that's probably a pretty tall order. Like it's going to take you a while to get around to everybody's office. But uh, so then you might be thinking about working with, with teams of, of teachers and actually, um, you know, within a, in a department. So it might be across a year level or it might be, I don't know, whatever the structure happens to be. Um, but I think if you particularly are in a big school and you try to have a uniform application of, of this idea, then it's going to be problematic. It's going to be very hit and miss and, and in a lot of cases, probably more miss than hit. Mm. So I think the general explanation of it um, could be done in a, in a staff meeting. So to say, well, you know, particularly say here in Victoria where there's been a lot of remote and distance learning over the last eight or so months, um, you know, a lot of teachers found it really difficult because they didn't know where the technology seemed to fit within the things that they were doing in their face-to-face -face classrooms. Well, this is a beautiful framework that is relatively simple and easy to understand and it gives you a place to put that technology 
uh, component um, and to see how it interacts. So you could start with that as a whole school kind of an approach so that people understand the, the framework, but the way that they then apply it and the way that they start to think about their practice, um, I think becomes a much more contextualized, smaller group of people that you'd want to work with. I mean, what about like if I had to say SAMA versus TPAC, if they're in a fight, would you take one framework over another or is there a place where maybe they intersect quite nicely and one merges with another at some point? Or Yeah, the TPAC SAMA arm wrestle that, um, that goes on. You know, there, there are people who, who argue for both mm-hmm. um, a, a, in different ways. Um, my personal preference is, is for TPAC um, and I think that, um, probably because it's been around for a little bit longer than, than the salmon model um, in part, but, you know, TPAC has a very large research base supporting it. So it's been used in over three and a half thousand studies now um, and has been used in a whole range of different contexts. Now that's not saying that salmon doesn't have a research base or that it's, you know, not viable or whatever. Um, it certainly is. But I think that, um from my perspective, there've been there's been probably deeper uh, exploration of, and and critique of the TPAC framework. Um, not saying that it's perfect. There are certainly a lot of challenges and problems with it, um, but that's why I'd, I'd probably choose TPAC over SAMA. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. SAMA has the benefit, I guess, of being that staged approach of it's like a step by step plan. Um, I think one of the struggles with TPAC that I've noted is it's a Venn diagram traditionally, that's how yep. it's presented. Um, and I think it was very helpful what you were saying earlier in that, you know, the technology doesn't come first, and it, but it does come somewhere. It's not sort of mm. everything at once. Um, and that's one of the things that I think SAMA has going forward in terms of its effectiveness as a model, um, you know, a mental model to think about things, which is what these are. They're really to help us think about things, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and SAMA, I, I see as, you know, we've got nice, nice clean steps, even you know, I'm probably more in your camp of not necessarily agreeing with those steps, but but the the TPAC model I think has a nice um, you know visual appeal. It looks like I can understand that you know technology overlaps with content knowledge and and so on and so forth. But um, but trying to get to the I guess the core of how do I improve uh, with TPAC probably isn't as simple. And so if we can rewind just back to that a little bit, is there a, a sort of way we should be thinking about this in a staged approach? Um, well, I think one of the one of the challenges, the other challenges that I have with the SAMA model is that it, it's hierarchical in that the more technology, the better. Mm. The more digital technology, the better. And and I'm I am an, an ed tech fan. I, I enjoy teaching with technologies. I enjoy um, seeing students working with technologies. But I also recognise that there are some situations in which the technologies are just unhelpful. They just don't do what I'm trying to achieve. So, for example, if I'm trying to teach students how to synthesise um, a large large sort of body of text and to come up with, well, what are the main themes or big ideas that are coming out of this? Well, if I go to a, a word cloud kind of platform and just dump all of the, the words into there and, and it does the synthesis work for me, well, it hasn't actually helped me teach the students what I want to teach them. It's an amazing piece of software, but if I was to get students to do that by hand, you know, with post-it notes and move things around and, and that kind of thing, I might actually have a better learning outcome for the students. In the SAMA model, 
that wouldn't be, uh, you know, a, a better version of that. So I think one of the advantages with TPAC is that even though it considers technologies, it doesn't say that more more use of technology is necessarily a better thing. Mm, that's such a eloquent way of putting it, like a great analogy, because it, it really makes it clear, I think, especially to me about how we should use the model to think about tech in the classroom it isn't about more tech. And I often have this discussion, you know, people say, well, what do you do about maths? You know, maths are, are always a difficult learning area for using technology because they need to do working out and they need to have demonstrated knowledge on graphs and and all of that is kind of difficult unless you have every device with a stylus and you know sort of a high level of technology in the school um and and i'll always say like if if you can't improve the the outcome don't use the technology and often you know for an it guy that we want to say use tech regardless you know we should be using tech for everything replace paper let's throw it all out but if at the end of the day the year 12 exam requires you to write um in pen and paper, well, let's not do all of our practice exams on on the laptop. <laughs> you know, let's actually write on pen and paper because that's the skill that we're actually trying to improve. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, there, there are there are lots of awesome technologies out there, and I think that one of the things that um, I think getting better looks like with TPAC is actually being more considered in your choices of technology in having wider choices. So instead of just uh, having your, your technology diet just focused on, you know, Word, PowerPoint and Excel, you actually have a, a, a richer, more varied kind of a diet and more options to choose from. Um, the more options you have, the better choices you're going to make. So um, I'd be advocating for people to be continuing to explore uh, these different emerging technologies. And, and that might be, you know, an old technology, but it's emerging for you. Go out and, and have, experiment with it. Try it out. See what it can and can't do. And even if it then doesn't fit into your class tomorrow or next week, then at some future point, you might be thinking, oh, I remember having a, a bit of a play with that. Yeah, I think that would could actually work in this particular circumstance. Um, and that way you're making better choices for your particular students, for the content that you're trying to teach at that particular point in time. Mm. And it's about technology being being a seat at the table. And there's this idea um, that I've been thinking about lately is this, that, uh, you know, every company now is, has to be a tech company. You know, this idea that uh, Uber is seen as a tech company, but Silvertop Taxis is seen as a, a traditional taxi company, when in reality, you know, they're both doing the same thing. They're in the same market sector, but um, we think of Uber as a technology company. I think there's a similar crossover happening in schools where we need to start thinking about technology as, a, as an embedded part of the delivery of education rather than, oh, you know, you're a tech school. I mean, that's actually a phrase here in, in Victoria. There are tech schools yeah, um, and non-tech schools. Where, where, do you, where do you sit on that? Yeah, look, I, I think um, if anyone was questioning the place of, of technologies in education before 2020, they're probably not now. And I think that even though we're starting to see, uh, you know, returns to face-to-face -face schooling and, and those kinds of things, I think that one of the things that a lot of people were surprised about was not that there were some things that maybe didn't work as well online as they did in a face-to-face -face classroom. Some things just don't translate as easily online. But I think a lot of people were really surprised at how some things that, that were a challenge in face-to-face -face classrooms worked incredibly well online. So I think that the place of, of digital technologies it is, there's no doubt in my mind that it's here to stay, that, that 
digital technologies are not disappearing out of schools anytime soon. So um, I think that one of the things that, that we have to do as teachers is start to think about what these offer um, our, us and our students um, and how we can make teaching and learning better with these tools. And as you said, Blake, if you can't, use a different tool. But that doesn't mean toss the whole idea of technologies out with that, that one moment. Yeah, very sort of polarising approach, isn't it? Sort of saying, well, it's either in or it's out. Yeah. Um, do, do you think that uh, overall we're in the right direction from your point of view? Like, you're doing, you know, you've got PhD students doing a lot, asking lots of great questions. Um, do you think that staff are making better decisions and are taking advantage of technology in a better way and we, we are reaching this, you know, digital education revolution? Because I often think, you know, there's this big promise of, of the digital education revolution and I wonder where it is. It's more of a digital education iteration, I think, is what we're in, where we're stepping our way very, very slowly and in some cases painstakingly slowly, um, particularly in schools that are underfunded or don't have, um, you know, uh, champions for this sort of stuff on, in their staff. Um, do you think we are sort of making that happen or do you think there's still a long way to go? Um, I think I think both of those things um, paradoxically are true at the same time. So I think if you look back to the way that teachers were using technologies, individual teachers were using technologies in their classrooms back in 2009, let's say when I, when I went to Monash, what teachers are doing in classrooms now, Blake, you were just talking about Google Docs, for example. In 2009, that just would have made my brain explode that, that you could actually have people working collaboratively on, on one document. And now it's just like, it's par for the course. It's, it's just, you know, we, that's just what we do. So I think that there have been um, revolutionary changes in the way that teachers do their work. Yes. But if we start talking about a revolution in the way that say Seymour Papert might've talked about, um, the digitally driven blowing up of schools back in the, the 70s or 80s, where we have a fundamental change in the power relations between teachers and students, where if we are able to empower students to take control of, of their, their learning, then we change the power structures within classrooms. Then I actually don't think we've really had a, a revolution in that kind of sense, I still see teachers standing up the front of classrooms using technologies to present content in really interesting and engaging ways, but they're still the ones who are largely in control of a lot of those technologies. And the students are still sitting at desks, often in rows, um, in the same way that they would have been the 1950s. So on one hand, I think teachers do amazing work and do fantastic things. I think to change what some people call a small g grammar of schooling, the way schools look and operate, then I think that's a much, much bigger challenge and a much longer term kind of an idea. Schools are very robust institutions in terms of, of their structure and, and, and the way that they, um, there's a guy, a French philosopher, a guy by the name of Pierre Bourdieu, who talks about cultural reproduction or replication, that things stay the same week to week, year to year, generation to generation. And we just continue to repeat um, the, the same kinds of structures that we have seen in the past. And so I think that we are seeing, as we've been talking about earlier uh, in this podcast about, Mike, you were talking about student um, choice and, and student, you know, led um, classrooms. And I was talking about these digital leaders in, in this school in South Australia. We are starting to see changes in those fundamental power structures that underpin teaching and learning. 
but I think it's going to be a little while yet before we see wholesale change across the board. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And um, it's, it's such an interesting place that we find ourselves in now where we've just come out of COVID and I'm, I'm well, you know, in Australia, New Zealand, anyway, a lot of other countries are going back into lockdowns now. But those post-lockdown experiences, I'm, I'm so interested to see the research that's going to come out about did everyone just go back to, well, you know, this is what we know and this is, like you said, an ingrained structure in the school of instruction first or are we open to more flexibility in the classroom and in the timetable? And, you know, I think that's going to take organisational change, which obviously has to be led through, um, through practice that's, uh, you know, modelled and proven with research, which I think, you know, is like, like we're, we're learning takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah, no, it can. But, but it, look, it, it's, it's an exciting idea to entertain and, and to start to explore. And as you say, I think just chipping away at, at these things, you know, and, and it can feel like you're sort of walking through quicksand and not getting anywhere particularly quickly. But I, it's such an, schools and schooling and education are such an important part of our society and an, and an important part of our world that I think unless... Um, there are people who continue to, to want and aim and strive for a better education system that serves our kids better, which I think by necessity is going to need to include technologies, then, then I think we may as well just throw our hands in the air and walk away from it all. If we're not trying to make it better, who cares? <laughs> Mike's all about that. His company's called Using Tech Better. So <laughs> <laughs> got to be better. That's it. Core value, I think. Yeah, it is. It is. That's actually one of our core values is to make it better. So, um, yeah. I mean, you've talked about like evaluating tech and the way that you've got tech considerations and you've got um, the way teachers make decisions and so on, and you've got PhD students making studies. Is there any particular questions that have been asked at the moment that have kind of got you excited or you're like, oh, that's a great question. I'm really keen to see the answer that comes out of that. Yeah, there, there are quite a few. Um, you know that that idea of well, what does it actually look like to get better? How do we how do we know when someone as a teacher is getting better at, at integrating technologies into their classes? That's a that's a pretty cool idea. Um, the stuff that I briefly mentioned, David Schaefer in the US, and and that mapping kind of tool. Mm-hmm. There are some really really cool things coming out of that. Um, where one of the things that that's challenging at the moment is that. Um, it takes a while for us to produce those maps. But working with folks in kind of like learning analytics spaces, working with natural language processing tools, what we're trying to do is is say, well, what if? imagine if we were able to get something where um, a teacher was able to have a, a kind of a dashboard on, on a computer screen or a, a tablet screen or something like that that was saying, not that you're doing things better or worse, but, hey, did you realise that, you were you were making decisions in this kind of way in this class. Is that what you actually intended to do? So this whole idea of kind of just giving teachers a bit of a nudge about what their practices look like in real time. So it'd be like almost having like another teacher in the room. That's a pretty cool idea, I reckon, and a totally different way of using technologies to improve teaching and learning. So that would be that like could a be perfect light system, red, orange, green, something like that. Or well, it could. I mean, that, that yeah, it could be. That that's a pretty sort of simple kind of an idea. But you know, if, if a teacher set themselves some some goals about you know um, trying to focus on particular approaches or particular techniques or um, you know asking particular types of questions or I don't know whatever it happened to be, and 
you you could then in real time feed back to those teachers and say, well, you were you were trying to ask a whole lot of open questions in this particular class. Did you realise that you've just asked five closed questions in a row? Is is that something that you wanted to do? And it might be, well, yeah, I did because the kids just weren't getting it, and I need to move on with the content. Mm. But you know. That's cool. Yeah, yeah those kinds of things. X percent of the lesson, you just did not shut up for 40 minutes and give the, the students time to process. Or... Yeah, yeah. And, and we're also doing some stuff that I think is, is going to be really cool um, or potentially really cool working with larger groups of students. So a lot of schools now are moving to like team talk classes where you might have 50 kids in a room or, or even more maybe and two or three teachers working together, which is really exciting. But But if we've got students working in groups, in those settings and arguably then probably one of the things that we're wanting them to do is to collaborate a little bit better. If that's one of the aims, then if you've got 60 or 70 kids in a room and two or three teachers, how on earth do you know which groups are collaborating well and which groups aren't, for example? So again, if we could use some of this natural language processing to be analyzing what students are talking about and all of a sudden, you know, it says, well, Mike Phillips has been, you know, blathering on here for an hour and dominating the conversation, that's probably not a good indication of collaboration. Hey, Blake, maybe you might want to go over and check out Mike's group because there might seem to be a bit of a, a challenge going on there. Then that's another really exciting and interesting way to be starting to, to think about technologies influencing teacher knowledge, but in a very different kind of a way. Yeah, it's like a dashboard. You know, you see those dashboards where they can keep an eye on the kids' screens all at once, you know, those net nanny type of things. It's like keeping an eye on their on their progress all at once, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's just, it's just I mean, if, if you've got large groups of kids in a room, how do you know what's going on, you know, with the group over in the corner if you're in another corner? You just can't. So if we can use technology, Mike, in a better way, then, you know, we might get better outcomes. And to a degree, this is sort of happening. If I think about the student management challenges, like at our school, we have 450 kids almost in a year level. Um, if you've got over 400 kids in a year level, no, no one student manager can know every student. Whereas if it's 100, you know, you can conceivably know everyone's name and roughly where they're at. Um, but when it's 400, it's just so far out of out of whack with what you know one person can manage and so we do rely on tools to track cruises to see people that aren't reaching their potential not not you know they might still be getting good grades but they're not growing uh, and things like that and, and i suppose that's already happening and this is just a the next level of that isn't it it's, it's more micro um going down into the actual class you know task yeah and, and also in real time too yeah. so it's 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 not real it's not being reactive a month or, you know, a week or whatever later, it's actually during the class. Um, and, and I think that's, that's going to be the next big thing. I think that changes a lot of teaching practices is, is getting more information to support what we've probably had in the past has been like, I don't think these guys have got it over here. I might go and try and explain it to them again. Cause I've just, I've just got that feeling, you know, they just don't look like they're really switched on today. Um, if you could back that up with some data to go, you know what, I was right. I'm going to head over and, and have a quick chat to them now. Um, yeah. You know, a, a bit more of a data informed uh, set of teaching practices might be, might be a really interesting way to go. Help you prioritize for sure. Look, Mike, I, I'm conscious of the time and, and uh, I'm sure like all of us, you've got many things to do, but I just wanted to say thank you. It's been an amazing um you know, exploration. There's a number of names that I'm going to look up now and some, some other concepts I'm going to take back. Um, 
And I just want to, I just want to sort of end on one more question, if that's okay. Sure. Um, just around, and it's sort of this, um, I guess, return to like traditional schooling that we're seeing a little bit of now. Um, what do you say to these like Silicon Valley executives that are putting their kids into schools that have no technology and sending kind of that mixed message? Do you think there's value in that? Do you think there's a certain type of achievement? And I know we've got to talk about context and everything, but when you've got people who work in technology, worried about technology, that's often a thing that we hear is, well, you know, people in Silicon Valley aren't sending their kids to a school with tech. Uh, why are we bothering with laptops? You know, we can't measure the impact of the, of the technology when we have a handwritten exam. Why do we need laptops in the class or not just laptops, but any technologies? Um, what, what's kind of your, I guess, broad strokes on that? What's the, the thinking or I guess the, the, the thought process you have around why technology does matter in schools and what we say to people who say it doesn't? I think, um, I certainly think technologies have a place and as, as do a whole range of other, other things. And so I think if we're offering balanced opportunities for young people um, that involve some tech and some non-tech options, um, then I think it's a really uh, important thing to, to keep that balance in place. But, for people who say technology, for example, has no place in schools. I've been doing some work um, with uh, Virtual School Victoria here in, in Melbourne, who are, they used to be called the Distance Education Centre, basically an, a totally online school. And without the technologies um, that they use, there would be a lot of students, they have a large enrolment, there would be a lot of students for a whole range of different reasons um, who, who can't attend a face-to-face -face kind of schooling situation. For those students, they would have a much more impoverished uh, education experience without those technologies. There is just no way that they would have as rich a, a series of connections, both with their teacher but with other kids in the class, um, without those. I've got another PhD student who's doing a, a study on how chronically ill kids who are going in and out of hospital all the time, stay connected to their friends um, and their, their classmates and their teacher in, in schools with the use of technology. So I think that for the majority of, of students, I think that balance is there. But to say that technologies have no place in schools, then there are going to be a lot of students who are already struggling with, with certain kinds of challenges in their lives who are just going to completely miss out. And so I think that if we start to think about um, what's good for most and what's really good for some, then I think it becomes pretty hard to argue why technologies shouldn't be a, a really core and important part of, of our education systems. I think that's a good summary, Blake. It is. And, and certainly job readiness as well. That's what I come back to is you know, if you're a tradie, you still have to use your phone to fill out your OHS report. Like it's not like there are many jobs left where you don't have to use a computer. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's definitely about, you know, preparing our kids for that. And, and that's been a big push as well in schools lately is, is job readiness skills and how, how we can do that earlier and earlier um, while they're studying. So, yeah, look, as I said, I don't want to keep talking, but thank you, thank you again for your time. Um, it's been just a fascinating discussion and certainly enlightened and sort of, uh, I guess, um, coloured in a lot of the, um, the areas of TPAC that I guess for me were still a little bit grey. So um, thank you again. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks.
And uh, so we'll catch up with everybody on the next episode of the Outclass podcast. I'm uh, really glad that you've had the opportunity to join us. And uh, again, thanks to Mike for, for sharing his wisdom and his experience in this, this area. And hopefully you've found something that you can take away, start a conversation about uh, around your faculty or across your team uh, or start to think through. If you've got any questions, just uh, feel free to leave a comment and uh, we'll come back to you. Thanks very much. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. For more episodes and show notes, visit utb.fyi forward slash outclassed.